Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, good morning, and happy new year again. I still feel like it's a new new year because last week it was like too new, close to new year to count as new year, but anyway, happy new year. We're glad you guys are here and joining us. Let's pause, let's pray, and let's lean into this morning. God, we are grateful for the blessings we have and the opportunity today to still our hearts and minds and recenter our lives in you and what that means. I pray you would inspire us. I pray you would challenge us and provoke us to new ideas and an imagining how to live out a life of faith in our world. And we are grateful for this time together in Jesus name. Amen couple of announcements. One is if you have given money towards Genesis, your tithe record will be in the mail shortly. If you're here, Gil has it for you, so you can pick it up from him um, and not have to wait for the mail. But I do want to thank everybody who has given to Genesis, not only this past year, but through this past season. We are here because of you. We are grateful because of you and uh, want to thank you for, again, your faithfulness to give. Uh, And hopefully as we move forward, we can honor those gifts through the things that we do here, the things that we share in teaching, the things that we do to connect one another. That is our desire to still move forward. Uh, Gosh, it's just been a strange few years. Um, you know, now that we started 2023, I saw a meme and it said like 2019 slash 2023, right? And it's like, you blinked and what happened to those years? But here we are. And again, we are here because of so many of you and your generosity. And so grateful for that. Um, I posed a question before we came online and I asked some of the people here, when you hear the word law, Concerning the Bible, what are your thoughts? Anyone have a thought? Shout it out. Don't be timid. What do you think of when you hear the idea of the law in the Bible? Old Testament laws. Okay, Old Testament. Tablets, Moses. Tablets, Moses. Okay. Like anyone else? So you, you get this idea. Now, does anyone get excited? <laughs> like, oh boy, law. Not usually, right? The law isn't something that we get excited about. And many times maybe we'll equate law with legalism. 
Um, but laws give us understanding of culture. We're able to see what's important to a people when those laws are penned or put out, however they are. You know, and there's certain laws that for us seem strange. Like in Singapore, it's illegal to chew gum. And the reason is because their public transit system was getting just littered with chewing gum and it was costing them like $150,000 a year just to clean their public transit system. And so they passed a law saying you can't chew gum, right? And so it made sense for them in that culture with that problem that they were having to, to do something like that. There was another one. I thought this one was interesting. It used to be illegal to wear a fake mustache in Alabama for the purpose of causing laughter in church. <laughs> now, <laughs> so many questions. Like, well, I, I would want to have been in that service where that law came into play because that just sounds like a good time to me. But what does it tell us about that time and that period in that state and their idea of church that wanted to push that law forward? Right, it's giving us insight. There were some people who had no sense of humor there, and there's others that are, I think, a little bit more profound. Before 1965, it was illegal for a single woman to buy birth control pills. What is that telling us about a culture? Or women also weren't allowed to get credit cards in their own name until 1974. That is crazy. It's telling us something about the people (laughs) who puts those laws in play, right? It wasn't until 1967 that interracial marriage was deemed unconstitutional in all states, right? Some states took longer to repeal those laws. What's that telling us? Right, those things are, are telling us something about the society. They're telling us something about the culture. And, and the same thing is true with the laws of Israel. Laws were common for nations to function, and it's no different than for Israel to function at that time. I, I used to feel threatened when I would hear things like the Code of Hammurabi was penned before the law of Moses, and in it we find an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I I felt like, well, if this is coming from God, it couldn't be plagiarized from someone else, right? But these are laws to govern a people, and we find them very similar in the various cultures. And, And instead of, you know, thinking that they were competing for you know, authority from God, maybe they're actually the fingerprints of God on the various societies trying to bring justice into a community at that time, right? Martin Luther King Jr. is known for saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. As time goes on, we see changes in some of these laws, and maybe it's an evolution of justice taking place in society. 
Maybe where they were and where we are, maybe before when these things weren't allowed and now they are, is showing that arc that is trying to move us forward into this area of justice. An Exodus description of God handing down laws to the Israelites, it's very similar to a pattern that we see on how kings made treaties with the people who possessed land at those times. What the king would do is he'd begin by telling the subjects who he was and what he had done for them. I'm your king and I have protected you from the enemy and I have provided these things for you. And then what he would do is he would inform the people that they need to obey to be under his rule. And there would be the contract, it would include, here is the the reward, the blessing, you will be safe. Here is the consequences or the curse. If you don't, you are going to, you know, off with your head. You have to follow these guidelines if you're going to be in that kingdom. And the contract included the rewards and blessings. And we see that very prominent, especially in the book of Deuteronomy idea of rewards and blessing. And the Ten Commandments, or the Big Ten as they called them back in Moses' day, are prefaced by a reminder of who God is and what God has done for the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slave slavery. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Okay, and we've kind of seen this taking place through the first 15 chapters. Verse three, we kind of see a turn. You shall have no other gods before me. Now the requirements are being put out. And and let's pause and notice for there to be no other gods, there is now a recognition that they believe that there actually were other gods, but they couldn't be before Yahweh. And we've talked about, we see this throughout the book of Exodus where the gods of Egypt, this pronouncement of these other gods, and it's known as monolatry rather than monotheism. And we see it prevalent if we're actually looking and reading it. You don't see it when you have the blinders of a tradition that says they didn't believe that. But if you read the text, it's like, well, it seems like they believed it. Why would they say don't have other gods if they didn't think? Why wouldn't they say, hey, there are no other gods, so just worship me? And he's saying don't have any other gods. Anyway, we go on. Notice the conditions continue and the consequences. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The cursing, the punishing, the blessing, showing love. We see these things happening again that were signs of what happened when there was a monarch over a people. And we see that now that God is being put in this place over these people. And all these laws are part of Israel's developing story, right? They are in 
that story. There isn't just, oh, here's some laws and here's what God's doing and here's some more laws and here's what God's doing. They're all kind of intertwined with one another. It's supposed to be connected, not separated. It's supposed to have this kind of thread throughout all of them. They're part of the history from the children of Abraham to the monarchy of David and Solomon. It is these laws, are these laws that are a part of who they are, a demonstration of the God they believe in. They're the terms and conditions of their story, and they're giving us a picture of who they are. And I think it's important to see that Israel was never, quote, saved by their works of the law. That's not in the story. They never had to obey God so that God would accept them. What we see right from the start has been very clear. God is saying, I am your God, you are my people. Remember Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham and didn't require anything from him. And what we've seen in Exodus is God is going to deliver you. God is going to save you. Why? Because you're my people, not because you obey my laws. There weren't even any laws that we see taking place then. And, and so it makes, this, it makes it clear that first God, in his quote, saves, right? If we want to use that term, which just happened to them throughout Egypt. And so maybe this notion we've had about, well, you have to keep the law to be right with God. That was Israel's requirement. You know, the reason that they aren't right with God is because they couldn't keep the law. That was never a requirement that to be right with me, you got to keep my law. Otherwise, I'm not going to love you. No, you're my people. I'm your God. This is how it is. Now there's blessings and cursings, but you're not saved because you do these things. You are saved. And we use that word in just this big generic term. You're saved because I'm your God. So the idea that I know I had that they had to be and keep the law of God completely to be right with God, it's not found in the story or in the laws themselves. And I think it's helpful for us to see that these laws develop and change as time goes on. In verse five, we just read that, you know, God's gonna punish the children for their sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I mean, how'd you guys feel when you read that? It's like, why, you know, that's not fair. You know, which generation am I? Am I the first generation or am I the third? Could I be the fifth generation so I'm past that curse? What, what's the real deal with that? We saw that again in Exodus 34. It says a similar thing. But in Deuteronomy, as time goes on, chapter 24, verse 16, the law states that parents are not to be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Also in Ezekiel, and the prophets have a way of pushing against. Have you ever, you know, people think that things are unjust, the laws are not fair, and so they protest to, to make amendments, to change what is unfair. That's kind of what the prophets did. You know, where the, the kings were holding this rule or the, the you know, priesthood was kind of locking into the people. And then this prophet would come and he would throw this wrench into the whole works to say, this isn't right. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, we see the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. What happened to third and fourth generation curse? 
somewhere, sometime, it seems that there had to be a change because it just didn't sit right. It just doesn't seem fair that the kid has to pay for the crime that the parent did. Now, you could say, well, there is this generational curse. You know, if your father's an alcoholic, you bear the curse of it. And and there are truths to that. But the laws stating these things, saying this is what's going to happen, change. They're amended. And we see something like that take place also with the Sabbath regarding why it is there, right? Continuing in Exodus 20, verse 8, says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. Why? Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the Sabbath is very central to this culture. It's what's gonna show the world around us what's important to us. We have a day that is dedicated to God because we are dedicated to God. Why? Because God created the heavens and the earth and then he rested and we are acknowledging that rest with God. But in Deuteronomy, the the same command is given, but the meaning is, is altered just a little bit. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14, it says, The seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, or your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Everything sounds, okay, that's pretty much similar. But in verse 15, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. It's no longer about creation. It's about deliverance. Now, it doesn't mean that the one was wrong and the other one is right, but there is a definite change. Why? And it's probably because in time, looking back, this is something that is closer to their understanding and more relating to than it was the first time it was written. In other words, they're, they're trying to keep it forefront in their mind, keep that tradition important, and let's now use the things that are before us to help us remember. And, and there is that idea of just kind of reimagining what God was saying and what now we can do with what God said, right? And that word reimagining, I know some have a hard time with it. It's kind of wrestling with, right? To, to bring more purpose or clarity to our current experience. And they did that with their law. Just like our laws have changed, their laws changed. And while we're still on the Big Ten... Have you ever noticed how ambiguous they are? What does it mean to honor your parents? Right? It's just kind of thrown out there. And what does it exactly mean to rest on the Sabbath? 
Do you have to take a nap? Right? And we know that they put all these kind of laws. <laughs> that sounds good to me. I vote for naps, right? They put all these kinds of conditions and laws to try and explain that. But that's the important part is that there is not this, this is what it means. All the time, always, there is just this big kind of guardrails of what it's to go into and we have to maneuver it. And that can be good or bad, right? The things can be twisted. I know that, I think it was 1975, my stepdad got busted for pot. And I remember my brother picking me up and taking me out of the house because they were worried the cops were going to come to our house and search our home. And we had pot at our house too. So we had to leave. And then I remember hearing that my stepdad paid the judge like $10,000, which back in 1975 was a lot of money, I guess. It's a lot of money now. Um, to give him a lighter sentence. And you start thinking, well, that's not fair, right? Because if you have money, you can get a lighter sentence. And then you step back and go, that's not fair because now marijuana is not even illegal and he's going to do prison time for it. And, and so the ideas of these laws, how we maneuver around them are something that we debate. And debate and wisdom were always necessary. It was always considered. That's why they're kind of broad in some of these terms. And then some of them get more narrow. And that's why they change. Because they have to be maneuvered in the society that they're living in. And it's necessary for us to figure out how to obey God's law in our life and in society. Judaism really is not so much focused on obeying the law of Moses just on its own terms, but on the long tradition of working out what it means to obey these laws that have various meanings. They're ambiguous, and they are. And ancient laws, as circumstances, change over time. The tradition in Judaism is called halakha, I think. It comes from the Hebrew verb to walk, and so means the way of behaving. The common view among many of us has been that Jews are slaves to their letter of the law, and it really doesn't do justice to the subtle Jewish tradition that worked through the law. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When he would hear them say something, and you have heard it said, but I say to you. And one example in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of tradition. And what was happening is you had the ability to help your father or mother because you had, say, uh, money, you had uh, 
land, you had oxen or whatever, things that could be of value to them and they were in need, honoring them would be giving them what they needed. But if you said, oh, I've dedicated this ox to God, so I can't give it to my dad, even though he needs it for his field because it's dedicated to God. It's just a loophole. It's a tax loophole so that you don't have to pay and you can be right with God. I can keep my ox and my standing with God too. All right, that's the letter of the law. That would be the legalism. And Jesus talks about that. And that's their tradition is to wrestle with these things. The law wasn't meant to be a stone that was there that doesn't move because it did seem to move and because they did negotiate with it. And I think that's important. I think I used to understand having to keep the law as legalism But it's more than that. Laws are necessary foundations for society. Legalism is using those laws in such a way that they are rigid and do not serve justice for the people. And that's different. And again, another example of how things evolved. According to Exodus, Hebrew male slaves could go free after seven years. But female slaves couldn't. In Exodus 21, we see that. In Deuteronomy, however, both male and female slaves can gain their freedom. So, hey, we're moving in the right direction, right? But then we get to Leviticus, and it forbids having Hebrew slaves altogether, And so you see this movement of a law that is actually producing more justice for everyone. There's still a lot, a long way to go. But we see a change taking place. Why? Because someone said, hey, this isn't fair. This isn't right it started to become something that they had the ability to talk about together. It wasn't so set in stone that it wasn't movable. And maybe that's how you thought the law of God was. It's just immovable. Well, it did move. Now the females aren't even supposed to be slaves, where before they weren't allowed to be free after seven years. What changed? The society changed. And so if you, like me, were taught that the Bible is the word of God and everything in it is true, period. But when you go through and you start seeing these laws change, you run into problems. What do I do with this? How, how do I balance these things out? What, what does it mean now when I say it's the word of God? Why did the laws change? Why was this required and now it's not? Why was this something that they allowed and now... It isn't what's happening to the system. And if you have a Bible, open it to Exodus 22. I want to give one more example of something that I think, because there's moral problems too, all right? At the beginning of Exodus chapter 22, you may see a heading that reads something like responsibility of property or protection of property. Does anyone have something like that at the top? Okay. 
But if you go down before verse 16, do you have another heading? What does it say? Social responsibilities, right? Or it might say social justice or ceremonial principles. Moral and ceremonial principles. Okay. Everyone knows those headings weren't there in the original, right? Here's the problem. Those were put there because there is a problem with what follows. The heading is there to try and separate the verses that preceded it from the verses that followed it. Why? Because the verses that preceded it talk about what you do when someone does damage to your property. Someone kills your ox. Someone takes something that is yours and damages it. How are they to pay for it? What happens after it is what happens if someone seduces your virgin daughter and how they have to pay for it. Because she was the father's property. And that little heading is meant to say, okay, it's different now. But it wasn't at that time. What do we do with that? Now, she got the full price of as if she, you know, was having a wedding, so I guess there's that monetary compensation, but she's still considered property. See, I would like it to just say something to the fact that, you know, by the way, virgin daughters are not property and they are not damaged goods if they were seduced, thus says the Lord. I think I'd be cool with that, right? But it doesn't say that. So what do we do with these things? we realize that this is being written in an ancient society to try and deal with circumstances they were living in. You are not allowed to chew gum in our community. You are going to have to pay if you do this in our society. Why? Because that's the laws as we are dealing with them right now. But thank God they've changed. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen that thank God we don't follow this law? That these things aren't required. And that brings me really to the point here. As followers of Jesus, Christian theology was never meant to rest on just Bible verses. And and hear me out. It was always about taking and applying these things to our lives and building and discerning connection between what was happening in the ancient world, what is happening today, and the modern world, and how it moves towards justice, the justice of God, how the kingdom of God is these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his, again, righteousness, his justice. Those are the things that push us forward. And we start using Bible verses to support our traditions like the Pharisees did when they would honor, not honor their father and mother and keep things from them because they could use a Bible verse to support it. What Bible verse do you use? Do you use the one that says women aren't allowed to go free? Or do you use the one that says you're not supposed to have slaves? They're both in the Bible. 
See, we're not supposed to build a whole theology just on Bible verses. We are supposed to take these things that are happening and continue to see how they're happening and what the character of God is and wrestle with it. And I think it was F.F. Bruce that said, Paul would be rolling over in his grave if he saw that we took his writings and turned them into Torah, tried to make them a law. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth that is going through all these issues and he's saying, hey guys, I think this is what needs to happen in your church. And we take it and say, okay, this is our new law. Women are not allowed to teach. And we take that Bible verse and we're actually removing it from the context of its culture and all the things that were happening and we're making it a law that doesn't move. Is that moving us towards justice? What about the other things in scripture regarding women? What about the prophetess? What about the Juliana who was chief among the apostles? What about those things? Do we not take those into consideration as well? Why do we choose the verses we do? Is it to further justice or our cause? There's a quote by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. that I love. It says, for some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. What are we doing? We are picking and choosing to support our causes instead of trying to understand the heart of God, and move in the direction that God is moving in. When Jesus said that the whole law rests on two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, everything rests on this. Those are our guardrails. We, we build inside of this frame because that is building us into the character of God all the other little things we can dialogue about, we can try and understand, we can wrestle with, and what we come to a conclusion with today might change in 10 years. Depends on what our society is doing. One day it might be legal to chew gum in Singapore because there's no problem. Everyone is considerate and they don't throw their waste on the public transit. As things change, the law will change and our understanding of what needs to happen will change. In Galatians 5, verse 22, it says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These are the guardrails. See, if we really loved one another, we wouldn't need most of the laws that we have. We wouldn't have to worry about killing each other because we love each other. We wouldn't have to worry about stealing because we care too much for each other. 
right? Wouldn't have to worry about, you know, taking your neighbor's wife or causing harm to somebody and, and abuse because you care for them. Because you want to, to make peace, because you want to see goodness show up in, in the relationship. We want to be kind. These things are really keeping the law in check. We have laws because we don't love. And what Jesus is moving us to is loving better. What the laws are doing is helping us create societies that don't cause more damage than good. And it was the same for the Hebrew law as it is for other countries And of course, laws get manipulated. The Pharisees use the law to maintain power. It's done still today. Why? Because we don't love well. And so that's what we need to move into. People would not have to worry about so many things if people really cared for one another We wouldn't punish women or minorities so that we can maintain power structures. We we wouldn't do things that abuse children in other countries so we could have cheap clothes. We, We wouldn't allow these things to happen. Why? Because we really care. And so we put laws in the meantime to build towards that. And they're absolutely necessary. But as societies change, as awareness changes, as information comes in, the laws will change. They did in the scripture, they do in our time, and it's good. As long as it moves us towards the justice of God. I'd like to talk to you guys more about that in a moment. Let's pray. Father, may our eyes see past maybe traditions that we have held regarding scripture, regarding the law, regarding our role in shaping what is to happen. Father, may we be empowered by the freedom you give in love to change not only laws, but hearts. And may we understand that from the very early stages, there has been a a wrestling with. There has been this groping to understand. There has been a desire to push forward to bring justice into our lives, the lives of our family, friends, our country, our world. And that that shows up so loud and clear in Jesus. May we move in that direction. May we look in that direction and maneuver around anything that keeps us from that. I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord write the law of love on your heart.
so that wherever you are in whatever society or space, you have direction in which way to move. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. I look forward to a conversation here with you guys. Hopefully you got some questions we can wrestle with. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.